Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on July 25th, 2019, at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In this podcast, we welcome Ari Schreiber, PhD candidate in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University, discussing his research project entitled Moroccan Sharia in the Age of Colonialism. Ari, um, welcome. Welcome back to Tangier. Thank welcome you. back to the legation. And we're really happy that you're here. We know that you're about to, to return um, to finish your finish your research back back in the United States, but thanks for coming. Um, and I wonder if you could just start out um, by telling us how did you come to the to the decision or, or to study the topic of Sharia courts during the colonial period in Morocco. Well, thank you for having me. I think it started in its beginning when I was here on a Fulbright in 2013-14, and at that time I was studying Moroccan nationalism and its construction of Islamic discourses as a discourse of nationalism. And the more I studied that, I, I found it to be very interesting and very fulfilling as a, as a sign of kind of the, the mental zeitgeist of the 1930s and 40s. Um, but as I continued, I, and I looked at sort of the legacy of what many of the intellectuals of that period did in the 1950s and 60s, namely like Alal al-Fasi, for instance, we find that they turn to law. And I started to look into the law and into how law was expressed in the 1950s and 60s, especially as sort of a nation-building exercise, especially as a political symbol. And then I asked myself, well, for all the things that people are saying that law is in particular about what Sharia or Islamic law, so to speak, is in the 1950s and 60s, what was it before? Was it the same as many of them claimed or as many of our contemporary Islamic legal historians have claimed, has there been this kind of rupture between what Islamic law was, and again, Islamic law is sort of a, a misnomer because it never really was a law in theory, it was a jurisprudence. And so was there a rupture in the nation state between what the, the adjudication of Sharia was before the nation state and after? And so I started looking into this, and I realized that for as much as been written on things like the Mudawana in Morocco uh, and the, the jurisprudential theory of Maliki law, which is the, the jurisprudential school that's prevalent here, we really don't know anything about how it was practiced before the nation state. And so if we are going to ask ourselves, what is the legacy of Sharia in the 20th and 21st century, it's really hard to make that determination if we don't know how it was practiced before the nation state. And when you say before, it was both before the nation state and before the protectorate? That's right. We know virtually nothing about before the protectorate, uh, just because we have little to no archives. In fact, uh, Margolin, who found it in Israel from a family uh, of, of uh, Moroccan descent. So we know next to nothing about it in court practice before. What we do know about it comes from a literature of uh, jurisprudence called Nuwezer. It means cases. And so fatwas that were given um, from you know the from the 16th century and the 19th century are the main compendia of mm -hmm. Al Bansharisi and Al Wazani respectively. So, but in terms of court practice, we just have known next to nothing. Mm -hmm. But you're you've discovered that during the colonial period, 
things changed. That's right. And they change in ways that are both there. They change and remain the same or that they or they remain deeply grounded in the Islamic jurisprudential tradition Mm -hmm. in ways that I didn't necessarily expect. For instance, in the court cases that we see from the 1920s up through the 50s, the Sharia judges are deeply, deeply ingrained in the jurisprudential tradition. It means that they are their sources of knowledge, of legal knowledge, the way that they're ruling on a given matter mm-hmm. comes with direct citations to the textual tradition, be it the compendia that were that have been around since the early period of Islamic law or the the middle period, you know, in the medieval uh, centuries. And the and also for their evidentiary standards, their evidentiary standards are very much based on the the standards that were established in tr- the tradition for testimony, uh, taking oaths, these kinds of things, mm-hmm. with a very distinctly Moroccan flair, which we can get into later. But at the same time, they are under new constraints, and the new constraints are mostly twofold. The first being bureaucratic, that the the French administration starts to bureaucratize the qadis, as well as all the court personnel, the, the notaries, um, even the, uh, the, the assistants, the assistant judges, they start to make hierarchies. They start to even give, in what is obviously the, the most French thing possible, they start to give the qadis a concours, a competitive exam that they have to take. And this begins in earnest in 1937. The most uh, tenable change is the jurisdictional boundaries that are drawn the whole kind of raison d'etre of French rule in Morocco was that on the one hand, we are going to reform every aspect of public society. On the other hand, and they were explicit about this in the Treaty of Fez, as well as in the subsequent foundational legislations, we are going to respect the what they called you know, Mohammedan religion, and we are going to respect the traditions that are on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so... The position that they put themselves in, this being the French administrators and reformers, is that they asserted that they are going to reform everything on the one hand, while simultaneously asserting that they are going to respect the traditions that exist. And so to do this, they circumscribe personal status law and some property law between Moroccan Muslims for Muslim Sharia courts, as well as mm-hmm. what they determined to be Berber tribal law to personal status to Berber Jama or their mm-hmm. little councils. Same with rabbinical courts. And then there were French courts and then there were Mahzani administrative courts and then there were consular courts as well. And it was a strategy of French colonialism to Absolutely. reorganize. Absolutely. And, and this is, you know, I try not to look at it in terms of they did it simply to control everything or simply to dominate, but there's definitely plenty of evidence for instance, as has been established by many other authors and historians, that the the attempts to uh, to place the the what who again who they determined ethnographically to be Berber under French law occurred because they thought that the the Berber populations were more conducive to being Frenchified, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as a result, there were definitely political motivations. At the same time, there were also other motivations in, in the French archive, for instance, I see time and again uh, the the local French authorities complaining about how there's 
interminable delays and how they're disorganized. They don't keep track of things in what's called the Kunesh, the court notebook. And to be frank, some of the Qadis agree with this. So it was not simply a one-sided effort of domination. It was in some sense co-produced. And so there was a real organizational element to it Absolutely. In, in parallel to any control elements. Yes, for sure. And because in, this is both in terms of organizationally and in terms of the way that the law is articulated, the French really needed it to be legible right. for them because there's so much of the thick, the mean, meaning the Islamic jurisprudential tradition that was illegible to French administrators, even though they had volumes and volumes of ethnography about it. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning, or at the very beginning when the protectorates began, how would you s describe the state of Sharia law just as it started, the, well, the protectorate system started? From what we know, the Sharia courts existed you know, for centuries and did not, even before the protectorate, have any jurisdiction over criminal or commercial matters, or at least anything major commercial. And so at the beginning, again, this was the French pretext to say that the Sharia courts will stay competent over what they've always been competent over. And the, the problem with you know, answering this kind of question from my end is that we have, and in fact the history entirely, is that we have plenty of sources that uh, contribute to our knowledge of it from the French perspective. Mm -hmm. So from the French perspective, as I said earlier, we have no shortage of of documentation that they are disorganized, they're venal, corrupt, they, you know, they sort of uh, take as long as they want, mm -hmm. especially in the, in the rural areas. So this is, from the French perspective, the problem. I can't really say any more than that uh, because I have no uh, internal, meaning many Moroccan sources about how it was in general mm -hmm. before. What I, what I see is, you know, from the protectorate onward, um, and I see it, you know, functioning to some extent parallel to, in some extent, to some extent against, and to some extent in concert with the French reforms in, so, in the uh, protectorate period. So there's no one, all three that could be... Like, Absolutely. The, yeah, and we have to acknowledge that because, I mean, there's been, I mean, this isn't something in post-colonial studies generally. Was it unidirectional? Was it co-produced? And I think it, it really... It can be any of that. It just really depends on the circumstance and the place. And you mentioned that the criminal and, and commercial jurisdiction pre-colonialism was parallel to the system of Sharia. Did that remain the case under uh, the protectorates? Yeah, it did. So in Morocco at the time, there was something called the Qaid or the Qaid and the, the Pasha. And they, and they, the Qaid in the, in the urban areas and the Pasha in the rural areas were technically competent for criminal issues and commercial issues. Okay. In the colonial period, they remained as such. However, the French courts then took over major criminal issues, meaning things like murder or high-level theft, mm -hmm. uh, and also commercial issues okay. as well. And also some other issues, like uh, like uh, certain property issues as well. Oh, really? Even yes. with property? Then. Yeah, and this was a major. This was, I mean, one of the loci of this blueprint of legal pluralism, meaning multi-jurisdictional uh, competencies that that creates attention. And that is the idea of registered property, or what was called here immatriculation or uh, tafid. 
it means basically registering property with the authorities. And from the, again, from the French perspective, what this means is that now Moroccans have a land deed with defined borders, and if there are disputes, they can come to the court. From the Moroccan perspective, it means property disputes are no longer jurisdiction of the Moroccan Sharia courts, and if it is registered, and therefore, if there are property disputes, they must go to the French courts, which are adjudicating property. Mm-hmm. And that that would have been in again in parallel to systems of uh, Al-Kaf or, or Adol property right. laws. So yes, yeah, so the the Al-Kaf, the Habus, as it's called here, mm-hmm. was an entirely different administrative animal altogether. I mean, it was. I've I've scarcely even delved into it right. because it it became such a bureaucratic and bureaucratized domain of law and of administration mm-hmm. uh, that it really almost no longer had anything to do with uh, the rest of the property disputes. So it's more personal personal property disputes that you've yes that's right personal at. property disputes is what I focus on. And you you made a methodological choice to focus on court cases and judges. Right. Why did you do that? So I chose to do that, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier about our historical kind of lacuna about this period. And there have been a number of scholars who have questioned, again, has Islamic law or Sharia or the Islamic jurisprudence, the fiqh, fundamentally changed due to the nation state? And I think a lot of those who would answer in the affirmative would compare Islamic jurisprudence, meaning the collection of texts, of prescriptive texts, with codified law as we see it in nation states. And they would see that there is a fundamental difference between those two. And I would agree with that. In theory, the way that fiqh works is that it is built up of the aggregation of rulings on individual issues by traditionally trained Muslim jurists, whereas codified law, even if it claims to be codifying sharia, is legislated in amendments by state legislators. Mm -hmm. So there is this dissonance between these two things. However, what we don't know is how the cases in the actual courts are adjudicated. And so what I always tell people, for instance, is, you know, think about in the American court system where we have lots and lots of legislation against something like discrimination. If we only read the legislation then we would assume that there is no discrimination in the United States courts. Mm -hmm. If we read the court cases, we can see that that is not always true. Maybe we could say it's frequently not true. And so when we read the court cases, when I read the court cases from the colonial period, what we're seeing is how these two different forms of law, meaning codified law and the jurisprudential tradition, are actually manifest in practice, how they are actually applied in the court, how the traditionally trained Qadi, the, the judge, is implementing these for a real-life mm-hmm. case. And so I see the court cases as as both something that will actually show us to what extent there is this transition throughout the 20th century, first of all. And second of all, it really is sort of where the, the theory meets the practice. Mm-hmm. It is where you see a judge being tasked with taking this jurisprudential tradition that has been in the process of of being added to and revised for centuries and applying it to a case that really happened in the courtroom based on the evidence presented to him because it's always a him. And so this is this is really why I find court cases 
both historically pertinent, but also just absolutely fascinating ways of insight into social history in the way that this epistemological tradition, meaning the, the tradition of Islamic jurisprudence, mm-hmm. is applied right. in practice. Did you find an example that was especially striking of how a decision might have resulted in a change or a broader jurisprudence application of of law? Broader meaning more than it might have been in the past or? Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, this is another question. I mean, another methodological issue, which is that you know, I've had a number of my advisors and other people I've talked to tell me this is, you know, how can you say how it changed if you don't know what happened before? And this is absolutely true. How yeah. can I say that? So what I'm trying to do at this point is just establish how it was then and how it progresses over the colonial period and how it is in concert with the jurisprudential texts and then how it moves going forward. So how one decision may then have an impact on how one decision may have an impact or how uh, how adjudicating certain issues changes oh, really? over time. For example? For example, so I was talking about how certain things are illegible in a sense to French jurisprudence or French uh, judges. And one of the things that I've, uh, I've found to be somewhat illegible is the concept of paternity claim. What this means is Basically, everyone knows that, in theory, if there's a married couple and they have a child, then the child gets lineage to the father. Likewise, we know that if we don't know, then we attribute the child to the father of who is married to the mother. This is called al-walid al-farash. It's a very fundamental maxim in Islamic jurisprudence. The question arises then, well, what happens if there's a child and the mother is unmarried? A lot of times this will just mean that the child is what's called weldazinna. It means a child out of wedlock and the child does not get rights of, of uh, inheritance or of nasab, lineage, and, and also custody and these kinds of things. But there's an in-between sort of state, which is largely unaccounted for because of certain social circumstances that existed here that were made illegible by the French. In one of the cases I have that I've focused largely on that I'm writing an article about, there is a child who, whose mother is suing for his uh, inheritance of his deceased father. The defendant says he does not have the right to it because his mother was a slave and the father does not have any illicit relationship to the slave. And therefore, he is, in fact, the child of Zinna. Because this case also involved a piece of registered property, the French courts rule on it also. The French courts say that there is no matrimonial link between the father and the mother. Therefore, the child has no right to inheritance. In the Sharia court, by contrast, they recognize that, as is stipulated in the jurisprudential tradition, meaning the fiqh, if a father owns a slave and takes her as his concubine, then the child is legitimate, and the child has inheritance rights. This, of course, did not apply to the property because that was under French jurisdiction, but the point is that, and also, by the way, the the standard in the thick 
for establishing that there is zina requires four mm-hmm. witnesses, which the opponent also didn't have. This was recognized by the Sharia court and not by the French court. The French court simply said there is no matrimonial right. link between the father and the mother. And they're right. They said there's no matrimonial link, therefore the child does not have inheritance right. rights because they are not going to the depths of the holistic depths of the thick tradition right. to understand how all these different factors, the evidence, the circumstance, the status of the woman play into the norm. Mm-hmm. By contrast, the Sharia court does. And so this is why I'm saying this is a certain illegibility to the French courts, right. either because they didn't know or because they didn't want to mention that slavery exists as a legal category in this country, or because they didn't understand that the status of zinna, meaning of fornicator, requires such a high evidentiary standard mm-hmm. within the jurisprudential tradition. Well, going to the whole property question, I mean, inheritance of property is yeah. central to Islamic law. Yes. Um, but you said that during the protectorate period, the French controlled property. How did they justify it in the in the grounds while nominally uh, acknowledging the the importance of islamic law to the people following the law they did it very shrewdly they did it through article four of the sharifian dahir of 1914 which was the fundamental uh, legislation that founded the let me restart they did it through the sharifian dahir of 1914, Article 4. And the Sharifin Dahir of 1914 was the fundamental piece of legislation that establishes the court system and the, the system of, of, of the entire judicial judiciary in Morocco. Okay. And what Article 4 says is that if in a court case that arises to a French court, there arises, let me start over again. So, yeah. If in a court case that arises to a French court, there is an issue related to the Sharia courts, then the French court may settle that question so that it may settle its own question. Mm -hmm. What this means is that if there is a question of inheritance for, of a, uh, a piece of registered property between two Moroccan Muslims, then the French court may make a decision on who the proper inheritors are so that it may issue its own decision for which it has competence. This is why it, they, are, they are talking about things like what does Muslim law, or as they call it, Mohammedan right. law, say about X, Y, Z, um, which is quite interesting that they are taking it upon themselves to make the determination of what Muslim law, so to speak, says. Um, and so what ends up happening is that you have these artificial distinctions between, for instance, distributing the estate of someone and determining who the inheritor is. Mm-hmm. Because they say, they acknowledge that determining the inheritor is the competency of a Sharia court, and yet they go ahead and do that because it needs to be done in order for them to do their competency of distributing right. registered property. And I would imagine that the sale of property to Colon yeah. was sort of central to the whole need to have that kind of exactly and and this is another area in which the the legislation was sort of crafty in that the sharia courts only had jurisdiction over moroccan muslims what this means is that if you're a tunisian muslim and you married a moroccan muslim and you want to get a divorce you go to the french court if you're a moroccan muslim who has a property dispute with a jew a berber or a french person or another stranger another foreigner you go to the french court 
So anything that is not between Moroccan Muslims goes to the French court. The French court. So I've seen a lot of uh, French court cases, for instance, that are about marriage disputes, uh, property disputes that are between, say, uh, Algerians or Tunisians, um, or one of each with a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Now that's not exactly the same as Moroccan Muslims. Sorry. Yeah, but that's not exactly the same as a, a colonial policy uh, that clearly is sort of in the interests of the economy of the economics of the colonizers. Isn't the same as a colonial policy that may actually have an impact on a specific ability of a of a Sharia court or a judge to make a ruling? Did you also look at the question of colonial? Uh, oversight or intervention into specific rulings yeah so what we also find is that in there's there's an office called the mandub mahzani and it's sort of an exponent of the mahzan of the sultan but it's very much under the oversight of the the residence of the 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 french establishment Ah. here and so what the what the uh, mandub would do is that if there was a case that arose to a sharia judge and it was determined that it should be A, under the jurisdiction of, say, the Pasha or the Qaid, or B, under the jurisdiction of the, the French courts, they would write to the judge and order them to give up the case. And I have a lot of these letters uh, that were written. And in this case I was talking about earlier, where there's this, uh, the son of a, a slave and his inheritance, the minister of justice, in fact, wrote to the original Sharia judge and ordered him to stop looking at the mm-hmm. case um, and then to relook at it about six years later. So yeah, there's definitely intervention when it came to establishing jurisdiction. Are there, are there colonial archives about the communication between the French and the Mundub over these kind of questions? Or? Not that I've seen. Um, I think my assumption is that one of the parties makes a complaint. Uh, there is sort of some informal forum shopping going on where I do think that if there's a pretext, for instance, to claim that a, an issue should come before a French court or a Sharia court, then one of the parties may attempt to mm-hmm. do that uh, with with the uh, with the administration. Oh, interesting. But it's 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 not form shopping in the sense that we had in like the Ottoman period. I don't think it's sort of more informal and, and kind of uh, kind of uh, based on yeah. assumptions of how a case would go in one of the courts or the other. Are there other, before we go to the impact of the changes on post-colonial Morocco and the state of Morocco, are there any other points you'd like to raise about French relationship to the Sharia system during the colonial period? Well, it's, I think mostly my, my takeaway from it is that this is a, something that they, that they're, again, that the ethnographers, that the French scholars in Morocco did seek and and to some extent really did succeed at understanding. Mm-hmm. I think in practice, though, as, as in the case I described, they never fully understood that this is a very complicated and yet very holistic and inextricably linked epistemological system. What it means is that there, these are not just Qadis who are looking in these manuals and finding the answer to a question and ruling on it. There is an interplay of all the different elements of the fiqh, be it the norms of one category, which relate to the norms of another category, meaning the way that inheritance relates to slavery, which relates to gender, and also evidence. The fact that evident, evidentiary standards in the Sharia courts, which would have to establish all of these things, 
were not the same, were not necessarily right. always legible uh, to the French courts. And so, especially the, the, excuse me, the French judges, I think some of the scholars understood it, but not necessarily the French courts. And so this is what, you know, I find so interesting. And, but at the same time, I found no evidence that the Sharia courts and their judges did anything other than apply the tradition to the extent that they were able within their competency in the uh -huh. way that they they were educated in this traditional right. these traditional milieus. So, but there but there was an impact of the 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 impact on the system during the colonial era. Some of that continued into the independence era. No, no doubt about it. I mean the 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 circumscription of personal status law. Personal status, by the way, is not even a, a category of Islamic jurisprudence, um, or at least not traditionally. Basically, it's something was a, that was a way to kind of group family law, marriage, inheritance, divorce, um, custody, child custody, lineage, these kinds of things, mm -hmm. into a category that's then attributed to, or given, in a sense, to uh, the, the Sharia courts. And this is something, by the way, that occurs across the world in colonial, really? in colonial yeah. contexts. Um, especially in Muslim-majority uh, colonies or what later became nation-states. And also something that happens all across the world is that in independence periods, nation-states run with this and say that we are going to concretize the role of Sharia in a modern form of law. And so what they do, as happened in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, go on down the line, is they issue codes of personal status. In Morocco, it was called the Mudawana. Mm -hmm. And so in theory, or according to the claims made by these nation states, Sharia still exists in the law in for the domain of personal mm -hmm. status. But commercial and criminal law remained within the domain right. of the state. That's right. But civil, civil courts. Civil courts. Yeah. And what about uh, property? Property is also civil courts. Unless it's, there are, there may be, and this is sort of one of the things that I'm, I'm looking at is that the fallacy of these blueprints that the French imposed is that people had been going to Sharia courts almost for anything for so long. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a number of these kind of very small, maybe small claims, we could call it things about property disputes um, that were never that state in the Sharia courts. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about, for instance, in so often when I read cases about um, spousal disputes, the the main thing at hand is who gets the belongings of you know the wife or the husband mm -hmm. if there is cause for divorce. So I mean, this is property, but it's also uh, it's also yeah. personal status. So again, this is when we are talking about that there is truly an inextricability or a holistic epistemology that underlies the Islamic jurisprudential tradition, which during this period is being threatened with these sort of artificial divides uh -huh. in a sense. Um, but again, back to your question, I mean, the, I think mostly property is under civil and civil law and they have, I mean, they have now in, in Morocco, the legacy of this process of immatriculation, meaning registration through, you know, the, the propriété foncière, the con the yeah. conservation office of of of, of, of property, mm -hmm. um, and this is something that continues. Um, one last thing, I I know that you had some challenges with uh, in your archive in locating archives and getting access to things. 
method, uh, how would you advise other scholars who have to try to work with legal archives or you know access uh, documents from no, well, not necessarily the colonial period. It could be the pre-colonial period. Do you have any advice about which sources they should seek and and uh, yeah, or uh, permissions they should seek? Yeah, I mean, and this is something that is so kind of by the seat of your pants. I mean, just something that you you have to kind of get into the context where you are and figure it out. Um, I think, unfortunately, we we have the issue across the world that. There are many places that look upon research with suspicion. Um, it's much worse in other places than Morocco, but there is still some of that that I've encountered here where it's almost as though it is upon the researcher to justify why you would want to do historical research. And in some places, it's very forbidding. I think in recent years, Egypt, for instance, it's been almost impossible. And so one of the things that I realized when I was doing research here on another project uh, a number of years ago is that private collections are often a much better way to go if you can do it. It's a lot harder because there's no, a lot, oftentimes, you know, they're not advertising or they're not, you know, in a place where you can just give them mm -hmm. some money and then you go in and have at it. Um, but on the other hand, it allows you to build personal relationships with whoever may own these archives. And sometimes they don't even consider them archives. They consider them, you know, papers that, you know, granddad left over, you know, 100 years ago. And so if you can convince them that it's worth doing and worth you know, preserving as a historical artifact, then a lot of times people have success that way. Mm -hmm. The difficult thing, obviously, is finding them. And this is just, I mean, it's really just kind of a, a process of, I mean, the th I've cold called people, I've emailed people out of nowhere. I've, a lot of times people will have like, uh, like Facebook pages for their for their families, and I've emailed, I've messaged them, and they've responded. Uh -huh. Sometimes they don't. Um, I've gotten to know you know professors or people who put you in touch with people who put you in touch with people. So this is, I mean, this is one of those skills that you don't anticipate needing to have, and yet there it is. And you just so it's really it's really creating your own research network. Absolutely, and it's something where uh, I think you have to have the right approach. It's a sort of, I mean, it's one of those things that you you know. I can tell you this as someone who read whatever my research application was, where you can't always <laughs> say, you know, I need three months to just exist somewhere so that I can meet people. But it's absolutely the case where for, for you know, a certain amount of, of, of your research time is, needs to be devoted to just sort of waiting places, writing to people, showing up. And as strange as it sounds, at least to someone who hasn't experienced this before, this is a, a, a huge amount of what we do, um, at least as, as uh, on-the-ground researchers. Um, and then there's also the, the, the question of kind of how you organize your research, which is a little bit different. I you know, use uh, a scanning app on my phone. Um, I, I and others I know have done this often use the technique of offering to people that we will digitize and organize their archives for them. And to them, that's often a service. It's a kind of a win-win service where we get to see the archive and then they get to have a digitized, organized collection of things that they may have never looked right. at or have only looked at a little bit. So it's really uh, a matter of doing it, doing it ethically, and uh, then, and then you know, con being convinced of the fact that this is historically or, you know, anthropologically or scholarly 
scholarly valid uh, and convincing them of that also. Yeah. Did, were some of your networks, did you, I imagine you started uh, creating these networks when you were first a Fulbrighter. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, I was working on a different project at that time that was more Islamic intellectual history during the nationalist period here. But there's, and it was actually there that I first read a book that was, I think, authored by someone who got information from someone else mm-hmm. who was related to someone with an archive of Akadi. Mm-hmm. And so this, this is just how it happens. And there's, there's always dead ends. There's always people who don't care, uh, people who are uninterested in helping. But that's sort of how it goes. And this is where it's strange because we as academics, we, of, we often are so convinced that what we're doing is the most important thing ever. Uh, and yet when it comes down to convincing someone who is not an academic or is, you know, going about their life without concern for whatever niche topic that we are devoting our lives to, we then have to take that niche, possibly arcane yeah. topic and convince someone that it is important enough for them to help us. Sure. Well, th- thank you very much. And thank you for your research. I know you still got a bit to do. You've got some writing ahead yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's part <laughs> of it. The, the dissertation, yeah. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. But well, please, you know, remain in touch. And absolutely. we're really grateful that you came up all the way from, t- oh, from well, Rabat for today for the interview. And My pleasure. And best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean.